1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastick. The Aeneid has a reputation. It's the founding myth of Rome, used down the centuries to justify conquest, colonization, and the expansion of empire the world over. Although Virgil includes many voices in his epic, Aeneas' is the one that tends to be remembered and celebrated, especially by his putative descendant, the emperor Augustus. But with her new translation of the Aeneid, classicist Shadi Barch reveals the many ways that Virgil undermines both the glory of Aeneas and the authority of collective memory, down to the very verb used to begin and end the poem. Shadi Barch is a named professor of classics at the University of Chicago. She joins us on the podcast to untangle how the story of Aeneas is actually many stories, all in conversation with one another. Thanks so much for talking to me, Shadi.
2: Thank you for having me. I haven't been called a smarty pants since second grade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I
0: think this moment in classics uh, is really interesting because at the same time that we're wrestling with the fate of Greek and Latin texts and the classics more generally in education, we're also seeing the publication of brand new translations of the Odyssey, the Iliad, all of these classic texts. And a lot of the translations are by women. So I was wondering what you had to say about that.
2: It is interesting, isn't it? Um, One of the things that's going on with the classics in general right now is a kind of pushback against them because they've so long been associated with things like whiteness, masculinity, empire, uh, dominant cultures, and so forth. And I think the interesting thing about having women translate them is that we tend to be more sensitive to issues of power or of voices suppressed or ignored than perhaps um, male translators, especially male translators from previous centuries. We are very concerned to do justice to the voices that are or seem to be minimized by the text itself. And actually, it's often been the translations rather than the original texts that have served to minimize those voices. So, for example, in the Aeneid, there is a woman in North Africa with whom a hero, Aeneas, has a love affair. And after he leaves, she kills herself. And the reaction to this has often been, oh, you know, these these hysterical women, when their boyfriends walk out, anything can happen. But um, in the text, it's clear that she fears political reprisal from her neighbors. She thought they were married, and so now she has become a laughingstock. Um, she has no heir to continue her kingdom of Carthage with. And the words in the text actually show us that um, he lies to her, and when she says, why are you lying to me, he says, don't call me a liar so many things like this that get just kind of gently glided over in many translations, giving the impression that she is, in fact, a hysterical North African woman, as opposed to an incredibly smart founder of a city who is, well, frankly, betrayed by this man Aeneas. Another way in which translators have tended to mute voices of dissent where the Aeneid is concerned is that... When Aeneas essentially invades Italy to re-found his home city of Troy, the native Italians, as you might imagine, have a lot of nasty things to say about him, including the fact that, like Paris, he's out to steal a woman, somebody else's woman, that doesn't belong to him. And they call him all sorts of nasty things. They say he's from Troy, those Trojans, you know how they are, they like silks, they like luxury, it's an old Roman prejudice against the East. But instead of saying, hey, look at this Italian perspective on Easterners and isn't that interesting, and on the one hand, there is kind of this race sensibility involved in this prejudice, but on the other hand, this is how the Trojans were seen in those days. Um, the translators will tend to act as if those voices are illegitimate. And anything or any voice that says Aeneas isn't a wonderful man, this kind of tall and statuesque and lovable hero, are wrong, right? And those voices aren't wrong. They're another perspective that they are the perspective of the conquered. And as such, are very valuable. Do
0: the perspectives of the conquered come up in the language itself, in the narrative voice, for example, in addition to the voices of Dido or Juno?
2: One very nice example is that um, there's a complex Latin verb, condo, which does not refer to apartment buildings, but means the act of putting something on top or into something else. There's no verb in English that really does that. So in the first lines of the poem... Aeneas is going to Italy. Why? Because he's going to condo the Roman Empire there. He's going to found it, right? In the very last line of the poem, Aeneas sticks a sword in his enemy, Turnus, the Italian who's begging for mercy. And the verb for sticking your sword into an Italian begging for mercy is condo. Again, because it means the same thing, putting a sword in someone, putting a city on soil. So Virgil, with his first and last words, reminds us that the act of founding empire is unjust, has victims, and despite your efforts to cover it up, will always um, reveal itself to be essentially uh, an act of foundation that stands outside law, and that is violent. So much hinges
0: on interpreting a single word. It really does allow for different interpretations depending on how you read it. So what are the various ways that the Aeneid itself has been read since it was written 2,000 years ago?
2: That is such a good question because it's that very history, I think, that has continued to shape how it's received today. So the, basic, the first basic fact is that Virgil dies and the Emperor Augustus whose ancestor Aeneas is the hero of the poem, let me say his putative ancestor. Virgil dies and Augustus swoops in, grabs the poem, doesn't let the literary executor burn it, as Virgil has requested, and says, this is magnificent, and puts it in the school curriculum. And because he treats it like propaganda, everybody assumes, well, it is in praise of Augustus. So you have the earliest commentators on the Aeneid saying, hey, this is a poem praising Augustus through his ancestor Aeneas, and if you don't read it that way, you are wrong. You are making a big mistake. And they have to say that because there's so much in the poem that can't be read that way, and they're anxious about it. They want to control how we read it. Then the whole authority of Rome and the Roman Empire is taken up in 800 AD with Charlemagne and the revival of the Holy Roman Empire. The Americans look to it during the period of Manifest Destiny, you know, it's the, the duty of the Americans to go west and, and, and conquer all the people that own that land. Um, Mussolini, in the 20th century, makes a big deal out of the Aeneid and says that he is the, he is the new Augustus and he's going to conquer peoples just as Augustus and Aeneas did. And the Roman Empire under Mussolini will live forever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's largely been a history of appropriation for these kinds of goals: pro-imperial, pro-colonial, um, pro-Western goals. The funny thing is, the poem itself is really explicit about the fact that you cannot use poetry for propaganda. One example is that Virgil calls himself a Wates which means a poet and a prophet. It's the same word. And all the poet-prophets who appear in the epic get the future wrong. So when Virgil calls himself a wates, he's basically saying, guys, everything I say in this poem and everything I say about the future greatness of Rome needs to be taken with a grain of salt. That's just one hint. Another hint could be that, for example, when Aeneas is in the underworld and he's receiving the future history of the greatness of Rome from his dad, he says, wow, dad, this is wonderful. You know, my people are going to conquer the world. And then he exits the underworld and he's got two options. There's a gate of horn that represents true dreams and a gate of ivory that represents false dreams. And which, which gate do you think he goes out of? He goes out of the gate of ivory. Now, there are so many instances like this in the poem that I find it practically impossible to believe that for 2,000 years, people thought this was a piece of pro-Augustan propaganda. It's not. It's a poem that has been forced into that shape. And I also think this is probably why Virgil wanted to burn it on his deathbed. He figured out people weren't going to get it. They were just going to get the pro-Virgilian uh, version, and it would be misread for centuries. I confess that I probably misread it <laughs> in exactly the same way. <laughs> well, everybody does. They say Aeneas is really boring. You know, he's pious. He's kind of limp. He's constantly weeping. Um, he does what he's told to do by the gods, even when he doesn't want to do it. You know, he's no Achilles Um So they find him boring, but they don't find him devious. And that's what he really is. He's devious. Well, what's funny
0: is that this devious version of Aeneas is just as much a part of the text as pious Aeneas, along with about 12 other versions of him that appear in previous myths and stories. So how does Virgil wrestle with these prior incarnations of Aeneas?
2: So before Virgil takes up this subject of the Aeneid, he has to deal with the fact that in the mythological tradition, before he writes the Aeneid, Aeneas is largely seen as the man who betrayed his own city of Troy to the Greeks for treasure and then runs off with his dad and son. In some accounts, he makes it to Italy. In some accounts, he doesn't. In some accounts, he teams up with the Greek Odysseus, that wily teller of lies. And he founds Rome with Odysseus, right? Which makes no sense at all. So Virgil has to deal with this. What he produces is an Aeneas who obviously is not the guy who betrayed Rome, but he also doesn't want us to forget the earlier versions. Otherwise it would be propaganda. So he constantly puts in hints that the other traditions exist. And as you can imagine, readers have tended to ignore the hints And the old commentators have told us, you can't listen to these hints. You're making a mistake if you think they're hints. But they're very hard to ignore. One example is when Aeneas first lands in Carthage, he sees a depiction of the Trojan War in a frieze on the Temple of Juno. And he sees himself and the text says, oh, Aeneas sees himself. He's dressed in Greek armor. How nice. And then he sees some other things. And that is an aha moment. Why is Aeneas dressed in Greek armor? It's a throwback to the story of how he betrayed Troy and fought for the Greeks. But, of course, unless you know that previous history, you're just going to shrug and keep reading, right? And that's why knowing what Virgil was doing with the tools he had is so important. I have to confess, I was already a professor before I knew about these alternative traditions. I was never taught them in school. I was never even taught them in grad school. And they are crucial to understanding the poem. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked to
0: read that actually in the Middle Ages, there was a strain of historiography critical of Aeneas, which I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea they were were doing that then. I thought that was a
2: 60s thing. No. In the Middle Ages, they really like the version where Aeneas is a traitor, and there's all sorts of texts floating around, you know, the, the novel of Aeneas, Le Foment Aeneas or something. And he's a traitor in all of them. They love that story.
0: I mean, you said earlier that Aeneas is devious. And one example that you talk about is his interaction with Dido, which, you know, previously I thought like, oh, yes, it's so tragic. But having read your version, I'm like, oh, my God, what a <laughs> what an ass. <laughs> so what is so devious about his landing in Carthage and particularly like the story within a story that he tells Dido?
2: Mm-hmm. Another really great question. So if you think about the Odyssey, Odysseus, like Aeneas and the Aeneid, tends to tell stories about himself to strangers whose islands he's just landed on we've always known that his stories contain lies and misrepresentations, and that's just the nature of Odysseus. He's the guy with the golden tongue who tells stories that are meant to uh, win him hospitality, presence, you know, attractive women, you name it. But with Aeneas, who tells his own story in books two and three, nobody has said, wait a sec, let's treat him as we treat Odysseus. Instead, people have said, well, he's pious. So he must be telling the truth. Nuh-uh. There's no reason to think he's telling the truth. In fact, the first person he meets when he lands in Carthage is his mother Venus, dressed as a local, and she tells him the story of Dido's suffering. And when he goes and tells Dido his own story in books two and three, how he fled Troy, how he was tossed around the Mediterranean, all the terrible things that happened to him, the loss of his wife, etc., it matches the major elements of Dido's story very well. And so you have to sit back and say, wait a minute, why is he telling her this story which fills her with compassion? You know, why is this story so much like her story? Is he trying to win her over? That possibility is really um, emphasized for us, not only by the parallels in their stories, but by the fact that he lies to other people. So for example, when he lands in Italy, he seeks allies, and he tells the kings, he converses with, oh, I've been asked to make alliances with so many other kings before, but I chose you, you know, to offer my olive branch to. And there, there hasn't been anybody else the first time he says this. The only other person there's been is Dido, whom he abandoned and who killed herself. So why does he say all sorts of people want to be his ally? Well, you know, it's a piece of political rhetoric. He says what he needs to. And here's the thing. All the men in this epic say what they need to. When Jupiter is speaking to Aeneas's mom, Venus, he tells her everything she wants to hear. Oh, Aeneas is going to be a god, and the Roman Empire is going to have no boundaries of time and space, and it's going to be amazing, and he's going to have this, this wonderful trip to Italy, and it's all going to be hunky-dory. When he speaks to his wife, who likes the Trojans, he tells her another story. Oh, the Trojans are going to be subsumed by the Italians. Sure, they'll conquer her uh, them, but the name of Troy will disappear. The customs of the Italians will triumph, etc., etc. So different stories for different people.
0: So, I mean, given all of these complications and all of these doubts and other stories that don't cast Aeneas in a good light that are sprinkled throughout the text. I mean, it seems quite clear that it's not the clear-cut tool of propaganda that it's been interpreted to be. So why would Virgil volunteer to write a national myth at all if he were going to do it in this way?
2: Good question. So we have evidence that there was some pressure on him from Augustus to write a myth, sorry, to write a poem, not about Aeneas, but about Augustus himself. Virgil claims in another poem, The Georgics, that Augustus has asked him to write this battle epic about Augustus's amazing exploits as emperor of Rome. So what does Virgil do? He can't very well say no. But what he does instead is he writes a story about Augustus's supposed ancestor, not about Augustus. So that's one way of stepping back from the task. The other way of stepping back from the task is, as I have suggested, by hinting at the other Aeneid narratives that existed already. And the third way is by putting contradictions in the text that cannot be resolved. Here's a major one. In book one, in his speech to Venus, Jupiter says that the Romans from Augustus are going to be descended through Aeneas' son, Ulysses. And he's basically one of the few people to claim that Aeneas had a son, Eulus. Why is this important? It's important because Aeneas' adoptive father is Julius Caesar, or as you would say in Latin, Julius Caesar. And so there's a connection between Julius and Eulus that quote-unquote proves the line of descent. In Book 6, when Aeneas is talking to his dad in the underworld, his dad says, oh, yes, and the Roman people are going to come from the Trojans through Aeneas's son, Silvius. That's Aeneas's second son, born to him and his Italian wife in a forest. Now, here's a problem. You can't say Julius comes from Silvius. You just can't. And so he gives us two alternatives for the descendants of Aeneas, and one of those versions just does not match with Augustan propaganda at all. What are you gonna do about that? You're going to say this. Oh, Virgil died suddenly. He didn't have time to revise. And that's been the answer every time these problems have come up. Nobody could actually face the fact that this might not have been a piece of propaganda, that Aeneas might not have been a great guy, and so they say Virgil died before he could actually make the necessary corrections. Come on, like 50 necessary corrections All of which point to the fact that Aeneas is not a great hero or that the story isn't true. I mean, how could you make all those mistakes while you're writing the epic? I don't think so. Those mistakes have a purpose.
0: Yeah, it seems really deliberate, just like this practice that you bring up as an analogy for the whole poem, which is quite funny, the demnatio memoriae, you know, the OG cancel culture, if you will. Um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is.
0: So what is going on with Domnatio Memoriae, and why do you think this is a helpful metaphor for the Aeneid itself?
2: I think it's a very helpful metaphor. So in the, with the Domnatio Memoriae, there were certain Roman emperors who were really bad guys. You think of Caligula, you think of Nero, you think of Domitian, there's plenty of them. And the people they tormented knew they were bad guys, but they couldn't do anything about it until the guy was assassinated, usually. So after, say, uh, Domitian's assassination, what would happen is that you'd want to have a damnatio memoriae, which means a damnation of his memory. You would want to wipe him out of history, but you would also not want to spend a lot of money doing this. So you would recycle the statues of Domitian by simply cutting the head off the marble and sticking the head of a new king, the current king, on the old statue. Of course... There's a problem with this, which is that there's always a seam where you stick the new head on the old body. Uh, you you can't meld them together seamlessly. And so when, as a Roman citizen, you would look at the new statue of the good emperor Vespasian, say, you could see that there was a seam, and this would remind you that you were being asked to forget Domitian, right? So being asked to remember that you must forget is something completely different from somebody sliding out of history. If somebody slides out of history, you don't know about them anymore. And I think this is what's happening with the poem. Virgil is, on the surface, asking us to forget about the other Aeneases, the bad ones, but he keeps reminding us of them at the same time. So it's exactly like a damnatio Memoriae. It's a revision of of an old history that forces you to remember the old history.
0: I mean, knowing all that about the poem, given the Aeneid as sort of a demnatio memoriae itself, what do you think that reading the Aeneid has to offer us in the context now of like looking back and seeing, ah, yes, this text was used to justify conquest after conquest after conquest.
2: I think it offers us a couple of things. One thing is that you cannot simply label this as an uncomplicated piece of work that supports um, the values of the elite or the powerful or the dominant race or any of those things. It's too complicated to be interpreted like that. The other thing is kind of a cautionary tale. Because of its reception, the poem has been treated as being a certain kind of poem. It's amazing that that fact is dependent upon reception and not upon a return to the text and an attempt to make it more complicated or be sensitive to its complexities. And the fact that the poem has and can be appropriated that way Um, is dangerous because it could continue to be appropriated that way unless somebody does the work of recuperation. You probably know all about how white supremacists who were um, attacking the capital back in January had all sorts of Spartan symbols with them. They had Spartan helmets. They had uh, logos saying, come and get our weapons, which is something that the Spartans supposedly shouted when they were fighting the Persians. And so the Spartans are now being historically set up as the great white hope that resisted the evil Persians. Um, and that's just nonsense. It's historical nonsense in the same way that reading the Aeneid in that um, supremacist way is literary nonsense. But if we're not sensitive to the fact that we've been influenced by prior interpretations, yes, we are going to be in trouble because classical texts have been used like this ipso facto, because they belong to the generation that gets educated, which has always come from the upper classes, and has tended to go on into a a career in politics. If you look at the UK, for example, 200 years ago, or for that matter, the US 200 years ago. So I think the motto is, don't just accept the interpretations that are handed down to you, but examine them and see why anybody came up with that interpretation in the first place. And, you know, 100 years from now, somebody will be doing that to us, right?
0: We have links in the show notes to Shadi Barch's translation of The Aeneid, as well as her essay in The Washington Post, Why I Won't Surrender the Classics to the Far Right. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.